Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of First United Methodist Church in Opelika. We'd love for you to join us for worship each Sunday at 9 o'clock or 10.30 a.m. To learn more about First United Methodist, visit us online at fumcopelika.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at fumcopelika. Thanks for tuning in. Bible this morning. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, And as you're turning there and settling in, uh, let me give just a few words of introduction. As you've already heard this morning, uh, this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, uh, which marks the beginning of the Christian season of Lent. Which means that today, according to the Christian calendar, sometimes called the liturgical calendar, uh, today is Transfiguration Sunday, which I know was on the forefront of all of your minds as you came to worship this morning. Uh, I know you woke up and the first thing you thought was, man, I can't wait to get to church today. It's Transfiguration Sunday. Woo! (laughs) Nobody? No? Uh, Well, the truth is, Uh, Transfiguration Sunday is is a special set-apart day, Uh, but transfiguration is is not a word that we use very often. It's uh, not a part of our common vocabulary, Uh, unless, of course, you're a big fan of Harry Potter, and then you know that transfiguration is one of the core courses at Hogwarts where young wizards learn spells. Never mind. That's that's not what we're doing today, Uh, but I do want you to know that this is a special set-apart day in the Christian year, and I want you to know that. Because I want you to know that when you belong to a church, you're actually a part of something much bigger than just what's happening in this room. And so today, uh, thousands upon thousands of churches all across the world are going to be looking at this transfiguration story from Luke chapter 9. And that's what we're going to do as well. Uh, We are going to climb the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and my hope this morning is that you, like them, might see the glory of God uh, revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and I will invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let us pray. Lord, we pray for the one who preaches, for you know his sins are many. So speak to me, speak through me, if necessary, speak in spite of me, but always beyond me. God, as you speak, give to us open ears, soft hearts, and courageous minds, that we might be shaped by your word and our lives might be ordered according to your wisdom which orders all things for good. Hear this, our prayer, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. Uh, So let us make three tabernacles, three dwelling places, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is Peter's response to the transfiguration. This is Peter's response to his own mountaintop experience. It is good for us to be here. Now, if you grew up in the United Methodist Church or in a similar mainline denomination, then chances are you already know how the preaching from this point forward is supposed to go. If you've suffered through a lifetime of transfiguration sermons, you can probably guess what I'm going to say next. You know that at this point, I'm supposed to chalk this episode up to yet another example of obtuse, bullheaded, slow-to-listen, quick-to-speak Peter getting it all wrong. After all, uh, the Christian life is not about preserving these spiritual mountaintop experiences, no. The Christian life, we've been told, is about going back down the mountain. It's about going into the valley, into the grit and the grind of everyday life. A Christian discipleship, we've been told, is about going back down the mountain and rolling up our sleeves to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and embrace the outcast, and all the other things that most of you would probably already be doing even if you weren't a Christian. That's one way. And that preaching on the transfiguration often goes. But there's another option. Uh, the other option is to encourage you to identify with Peter. Uh, to encourage you to identify with Peter. Uh, Peter, the disciple whose mouth is always quicker than his mind. Is that any of you? Uh, Peter, whose ambition never quite measures up to his courage. The other option is to encourage you to identify with Peter and take comfort The Peter's just like you, a foolish, imperfect follower who fails at his faith as often as he gets it right. Option one, go back down the mountain. Option two, look at Peter. He's just like you. If you've endured more than a few sermons on the transfiguration, you might even think that these are the only two options allowed. Except, if Peter is wrong then why doesn't Jesus correct him? If Peter is wrong, then why doesn't Jesus correct him? When Peter says, Master, it is good for us to be here, why doesn't Jesus say, No, Peter, it is good for us to go back down the mountain? 
Oh, why doesn't Jesus say, no, Peter, it is not good for you to rest in me. It is good for you to go and do like me, so stop wasting time and get back out there. If Peter is so wrong, well, why doesn't Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block? It's a fair question, and so I wonder, well, what if Jesus doesn't correct Peter because more or less, Peter is right? It is good for us to be here. Ludwig Feuerbach was an awesomely bearded 19th century German philosopher. Uh, Not only was he an atheist, but he was also a fierce critic of Christianity. And Feuerbach argued that all our theology is really just anthropology. Now, before you roll your eyes, I'm going to explain what that means. Uh, Feuerbach argued that when Christians sing songs of worship and preachers begin to preach, we're not actually talking about God, as we claim. We're really just talking about ourselves in a loud voice. He argued that in Christian worship and Christian preaching, uh, we aren't actually receiving a word from God about God. We're just receiving a word from ourselves about ourselves. A word from us that just bounces off the ceiling and hits us back in the head. In other words, Christianity, according to Feuerbach, isn't really about God. It's about us. Now, uh, before you dismiss his argument as ridiculous or or juvenile, uh, think with me for a moment. Uh, There is perhaps no better proof of his argument than the propensity of preachers like me to take this about what God in Christ is doing on the mountaintop and make it about your need to go back down the mountain. There is perhaps no better proof of his argument than the propensity of preachers like me to take a story about Jesus Christ and make it about Peter. So as I was preparing to preach, I wondered, what would Peter make of the fact that so many preachers like me make Peter the point of the scripture? What would Peter make of the fact that so many preachers like me are tempted to make Peter the subject of our preaching? To take a story about God and make it about you. How you should go and do what Peter doesn't seem to realize he should go and do. When we take a story about God and we make it about Peter, which is to say about us, I think Ludwig Feuerbach is grinning from his grave. But Peter? I think Peter knows more than any of us that this transfiguration story is not about what we should go down the mountain and do for God. I think Peter, more than any of us, knows that this is a story about what God in Christ is about to go down the mountain and do for us. Let me say that again. The transfiguration is not about what we must go down the mountain and do for God. The transfiguration is about what Jesus Christ is about to go down the mountain and do for us, for all of us. The transfiguration is about what Jesus Christ is about to go and do once and for all. You might even say it this way. The transfiguration is a preview of the gospel. The transfiguration is a preview of the gospel. 
And Luke spells it out for us. Uh, Just before this scene, Jesus tells the disciples that he must go and undergo great suffering, that he will be rejected by the super pious holiness enforcers, and that he will be crucified by an angry crowd. And then, in today's scene, uh, Jesus is on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets. And watch this, in Luke uh, 9, verse 31, it says this, They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, Note that word, accomplish. Uh, Luke doesn't say that Jesus is about to go down the mountain uh, and experience something unfortunate. Luke doesn't say that Jesus is about to go down the mountain and undergo something unintended. Luke speaks of Jesus' journey down the mountain as a mission that he will accomplish. So what is it that Jesus is about to go down the mountain and do? What is it that Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem? It's what Nolan's been preaching about for the last three weeks. Uh, The mission that Jesus is about to go down and accomplish is the conquering of sin and the defeat of death once and for all through his cross and resurrection. Do you see it now? The transfiguration is a preview of the gospel. And here on the mountaintop, uh, Luke wants you to see uh, what Paul tells us in, in Romans 6. That our baptism into Christ's death marks our salvation from the power of sin and death because of what Christ has accomplished. Uh, Look with me at Romans 6, uh, starting at verse 3. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Then it says this in verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The transfiguration story is not about what you must go down the mountain and do for God. The transfiguration is about what Jesus is about to go down the mountain and do for you. Here's the next thing I want you to see from this story. Look with me at uh, Luke 9, verse 32. So Peter, James, and John are on the mountaintop with Jesus. Uh, Suddenly Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, and then it says this. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory. Whose glory? Christ's glory. Whose glory did they see? They saw God's glory. Uh, Turn to your neighbor and say, they saw God's glory. There on the mountaintop, they saw God's glory. Do you understand what this means? Uh, Do you comprehend how incredible this is? Do you understand the weight and the significance of this moment? Uh, Right now, I feel like Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Didn't any of you guys ever go to Sunday school? (laughs) In the Old Testament, the glory of God is what spilled forth from the ark, and when it did, it struck an innocent bystanding boy named Uzzah dead. That's 2 Samuel 6. 
And that's why Indiana Jones tells Marion to close her eyes when the bad guys open up the ark. He knows the Uzzah story. He likely knows, too, that the glory of God is what dwelt in the temple, in the holy of holies, behind the temple veil, a veil, a covering that was there, not to protect holy God from sinful us, but a veil that was there by God's own mercy and design to protect sinful us from the holiness of God. So watch this. Here on the mountain, Peter, James, and John beheld the glory of God and lived. They lived. All three of them, they're like Harry Potter. They're the boys who lived. Peter, James, and John, all of them sinners, Peter perhaps most of all, uh, they beheld the unmediated glory of God loosed from the temple. They beheld the glory of God in the transfigured Christ, and they lived. These three sinners, they find themselves in the presence of God's glory, and they did not receive the wages their sins had earned. They were not struck dead. They lived. And I think that's why they walk away in silence. Because they are dumbfounded by the grace of God. Do you see it now? The transfiguration is a preview of the gospel. What Indiana Jones knew is what we so often forget, which is the basic grammar of the gospel. Uh, that you and I, that we are not acceptable before the Lord just the way we are. What makes you a child of God isn't anything inherent to you, nor is it something achievable by you. The gap between our sinfulness and the holiness of God is far too great. You aren't acceptable before the Lord just the way you are. You have to be rendered acceptable. You have to be made acceptable. Uh, That's the assumption that animates all of the action in the temple where the glory of God dwelt. And I think it's the assumption uh, that leaves Peter, James, and John speechless when they encounter God's glory and live. Now, to understand this, uh, we have to go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. I know, that's why you came this morning, to hear about Leviticus. Uh, But once a year, a representative of God's people, the high priest, would draw the short straw and would venture beyond the temple veil into the Holy of Holies. This high priest and only the high priest would draw near to the glory of God in the temple and ask God to remove his people's sins so that they would be acceptable before the Lord acceptable for their relationship with God, acceptable to be counted among God's people. And only after following every minute detail of every preparatory ritual, the high priest would lay both of his hands on the head of a goat and would confess onto it. He would transfer onto it the sins of God's people. And after the high priest's work was finished, that goat would bear the people's sins away into the God-forsaken wilderness. So that now, until next Yom Kippur, nothing can separate them from the love of God. Now, with our un-Jewish eyes, it's easy to miss this. 
It's easy to miss the significance of this, but as Christians, we're meant to see this action in Leviticus as a preparatory event. We are meant to see this as God's way of preparing his people for a single perfect sacrifice. That's exactly how the book of Hebrews frames Jesus' death. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, and this is the good news, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And that because of his perfect sacrifice, God will remember our sins no more. The writer of Hebrews is saying that because of Jesus Christ, that veil in the temple is no longer needed. That because of Jesus Christ, the glory of God need not be feared anymore. That our justification before God is not based on who we are or what we've done, but on who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That that none are righteous. That all have sinned, but at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ died once and for all, meaning all of us. Uh, For those who are liberal and those who are conservative. For those who are married and those who are divorced. For those who are addicts and those who are clean for those who are rich and those who are poor, for those who are young and those who are old, for those who enjoy the Super Bowl halftime show and those who did not. (laughs) All of us sinners have been made acceptable, not by our behavior, but by our baptism. Our baptism into Christ's death. Our baptism into that which Christ is about to go down the mountain and accomplish for us. So shame on us when we begin to argue about this or that sin. Shame on us when we point the finger at those who sin differently than us. Shame on us when we look down our noses at those who believe differently than us, because when we do that, we have forgotten the grammar of the gospel. We have forgotten that we are justified by our right interpretation of Scripture. Wait, that, that's not it. Oh, we've forgotten that we are justified by our good deeds and our holy living. No. Oh, we've forgotten that we are justified by the correctness of our political opinions. That's not it. Paul says that since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are justified by what Christ is about to go down the mountain and accomplish once and for all. For all sin. For past sin, for present sin, for future sin. Such that now God judges not one of us according to us, but God judges us according to Christ's perfect sacrifice. And now... We, like Peter and James and John, we sinners can rest easy in the glory of God's grace. We sinners can rest easy in the glory of God's grace. 
Friends, the transfiguration is a preview of the gospel. And that's why I believe that Peter is right. He is right when he says, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. Uh, At least it should be. Uh, Peter is right. It is good for us to be here because the church is the only place in the world, at least it should be, where we can come and lay our burdens down. Where we can come and lay down the burdens of what we ought to do but don't. Where we can come and lay down the burdens of what we should not do but did. It is good for us to be here because the church is the only place where we can lay those burdens down and rest. Rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. And that's why the baptismal font is open this morning. At the close of our service, if you're willing, I will invite you to come down to the font and to roll up your sleeves, dip your hand in the water. You may even want to make the sign of the cross on your forehead. But at the end of our service, I'll invite you to come down and to remember your baptism. Your baptism into Christ's death. Your baptism into that which Christ went down the mountain to accomplish for you. To remember your baptism and rest easy in the glory of God's grace. Because until we learn to do that, every journey back down the mountain will be a journey that leaves the gospel behind. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, may we know this day the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished for us. Like Peter, James, and John, may we stand amazed at the glory of your grace. May we stand amazed at your glory revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And may what we see allow us to lay our burdens down and rest. 